You know, as Mo said, last night we did our first ever Saturday night service. And uh, total disclosure, it's something I've been wanting to do, frankly, for a while. You know, I've kind of watched as our church and our two services during most of the year, not the summer, but most of the year, has really grown full. I mean, they come to us, these people that study stuff like this, and they say, look, when 80% of your seats are full, you're full because then a family of five walks in and they're like, okay, we can put three of you here, we can put two of you here, or we can put all of you in the front row. And I don't even like to sit in the front row. So I, you know, I, I certainly feel it for somebody who comes in and goes, yeah, you know, I think we'll go to Dunkin' Donuts instead. So like, I get that. So I've been wanting to do this for a while. I would never have done it on the first weekend in June, however, ever. It's not a summertime venture, but it is a summertime venture for us. So the wisdom in this comes from the Lord. And the reason I say that really with great confidence is that the Lord has been very much involved in this mustard seed campaign that we have going on. And the construction phase of that, as you heard, has begun. And it has deprived a church that is already deprived of parking, of our biggest parking lot for probably the next three or four months in a row. And so here we are. And what that creates for us is an opportunity. When you come to church year after year, week after week, and it's kind of mostly full, here's what you're not thinking. Hey, man, we need to fill this place up. We need to share what God is doing here with other people. But now you can do that. And you should do that. And I know that can be a little bit awkward. I know that can be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to tell you plainly, it's a lot less awkward and uncomfortable when you actually do it than you thought that it would be as you feared it in your heart moving into it. But if that's what you're fearful of, then just let today's message speak to you because here's the deal. Life's not about us. It's not about what's best for us. Our lives belong to the Lord. And here's what it's about, bottom line. And you're going to hear this again and again and again until you're going, yeah, I got it. And then I'm going to say it a few more times. It's about what's best for the gospel. So with that said, last week as we continued our study of this book of 1 Corinthians that we've been in for some time now, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and let me summarize it this way. It's as though Paul came to us and he laid a table before us, and then he gathered up all of the rights that are ours in Jesus, and he put them on the table, and then he gathered up all of the freedoms that are ours in Jesus, and he put them on the table, and he came to us as followers of Jesus and said, hey guys, do you see all this? Enjoy it. It's awesome. It's the gift of God to you. But know this, that as wonderful as these things are, as significant as these things are, as enjoyable as these things are, as important as these things are, there's something even more important. And he came to us with one of those more important things. He says, look, the welfare of your Christian brothers and sisters is more important. So what that means, practically speaking, is that if your enjoyment of one of these rights or freedoms is going in any way, shape, or form, reasonably or unreasonably, to do damage to the heart, to the soul, to the walk with Christ of one of your fellow Christian brothers and sisters, then here's the deal. Even though it's irritating to you, even though you've tried to explain to them why it ought not to hurt them if you do this, or for that matter, if they do this. Okay, they're not getting it. Therefore, your love for them should override your rights and freedoms and you should sacrifice your rights and freedoms. So today we get to chapter 9, and Paul ups the ante significantly. He leaves the rights and and freedoms on the table, and then he adds a table. And he says, all right, now we're going to gather up everything that you have, keyword being everything, put that on the table. Everything that you are, everything being the operative word, put that on the table. And he's going to say, listen, enjoy it. It's the gift of God to you. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you've become by God's grace. But know this, 
There's something more important even than everything that you have and that everything that you are, and that something that's more important is the mission of Jesus Christ. It's His gospel mission in this world. He has given us, the people of God, the mission of taking His gospel message to every people group on the planet, starting with the people group in our homes and then our offices and then our schools and then our neighborhood and then our city and then just on out from there. It's a significant mission. He's entrusted that mission to us. And so what Paul's going to say today is, listen, enjoy all that you have. Enjoy all that you are. Be thankful because it all came from God. But know this, there's something more important, and that's the gospel. And so then when, not if, because this will happen, when something that you have or something that you are prevents you from fully participating in this mission, the eternal mission of Christ in this world, Okay, so here's what you need to do. Out of love for Jesus and out of love for people who like you need Jesus, you need to sacrifice whatever that thing is. You need to give it away. You need to go without. In other words, he's coming to us and he's saying, listen, we need to change fundamentally the operative question of life because the operative question of life for pretty much every human being in the entire world, including us, is this, what's best for me? Consciously and subconsciously, that's how we operate. And we ask it of every situation, every circumstance, every opportunity, every relationship, every challenge, everything we have, everything we are. We're constantly evaluating everything and everyone in light of what's best for me, what's best for me, what's best for me, what's best for me. Paul is coming to us today and he's going, what in the world? Why would you even ask that question? It's crazy. Like he doesn't even have a category for understanding that question. Why? because we don't belong to ourselves. And he's made that clear in chapter six. He said, let me tell you who you are. First of all, you owe your very existence to Almighty God like you would not have being apart from Him, much less anything that you have or anything that you are. Why? Because He's given it all to you. You're like, no, 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 He didn't. Yeah, He did. He gave you life and breath and energy and creativity and intelligence and ingenuity and opportunities and all of these things. Listen, by virtue of creation, you belong to God, not you. So what's best for me makes no sense in that regard. But in addition to that, If you're a believer in Jesus, my goodness, he's given the life of his very son for you. He has purchased you. Paul says, you are not your own. You belong to Christ. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what did he say in chapter 6? Glorify God in your body. And we talked about that. What does that mean? Well, what do you use your body to do? Okay, because I'm going to go with that word everything. That's what it means. So Paul's coming to us today and going, okay, we're going to change the operative question of life for a follower of Jesus. We understand everybody else is going to think this way, and why would they not? But it's no longer what's best for me. The operative question of life is is what's best for the gospel. That's it. That's it. All right. Now I'm totally lost. No, I'm kidding. But this needs to be said, and this is important too. This tells you of the wonders of your God, okay? You ready? In the design of God, whose plans and purposes extend for us way, way, way beyond the tiny little life. And I know it feels like a long time, but it's a tiny little life compared to eternity. And good grief, it goes fast, doesn't it? Everyone with gray hair is like, yes, because I'm 18 in here, but out here I'm 65, okay? It goes fast. God's plans and purposes extend way beyond our tiny little life. 
And what we're going to discover in the end is that by God's design and grace, what is best for the gospel for us in this life, no matter what that may cost us, is in the end for all of eternity, also what's best for us. So it's kind of a cool arrangement. And with that in mind, we pick up our study in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning of verse 1. And Paul says this, he says, am I not free? Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute. What he means by that is, am I not free as the founding apostle of your church, you people in Corinth, to receive from you financial support? Did I not have a right to do that? Was I not free to receive that from you? That's what he's asking. That's what he's saying. But it's not what he did. So he sacrificed that right. He sacrificed that freedom. And you say, well, good grief, why would he do that? Well, certainly not because that's what would be best for him, most comfortable for him, least stressful for him, easiest for him. No, 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 because it's what's best for the gospel. He got to the city. He studied the city. He realized that in this city, wow, I've got a whole group of people who are used to itinerant philosophers and preachers rolling through town, peddling their philosophies and their religions with the hope of getting paid. Hey, guys, we're going to take up a love offering at the end. They've seen this. And he thought, man, I don't want to be one of those guys. And and I don't want to be one of those guys because what I don't want is for this city that I'm trying to reach with the unique and all-the-world gospel of Jesus Christ to throw the unique and all-the-world gospel of Jesus Christ in the pile with all of these other philosophies and religions. So here's what I'm going to do instead. Even though I've got a more than full-time job trying to get this church up and running in the midst of a city that knows nothing of the Lord... I'm going to go get a part-time job on the side, you know, because I have nothing better to do so that I can earn just enough money to eat and to keep clothed and to have a roof over my head at night and so that I can then give these guys the gospel at my expense, which if you think about it really is kind of a picture, a living illustration of the gospel. Why is the gospel free to us? Because Christ paid for it. It's pretty awesome. But you can understand what's happened here. However, what has also happened, as we're going to see next, is a lot of these people in this Corinthian church were like, well, why didn't you demand your right? Did you not have it? And the reason they said that is because after Paul assembled this church and he got it up and running, he went off to plant other churches. Well, other Christians came to town, you know. We've heard about some of them in this book. So Apollos, this great teacher, comes rolling through town. The Apostle Peter, kind of a big name, maybe you've heard of him, came rolling through this church. And here's what these guys did. They accepted financial help so that they could work full-time in this church. Why? Because that's what was best for the gospel when they got there. Paul had already established the unique and all-the-world message of, of Jesus and had separated that by his own labors at his own expense from all of the other religions and philosophies that they've been exposed to. However, what happened is some of these Corinthian Christians are saying, well, Peter's charging us. He's demanding that right. Why didn't Paul? Is he not actually an apostle? And so he takes that on head on right here at the beginning. And he says, am I not free to have received the support from you. And then he says, am I not an apostle? Like, are we really going to have this conversation? Yeah. So he starts making his case. He says, all right, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Meaning seen the risen Jesus with my naked eyes, because that's one of the marks of an apostle. But then he goes on and he says, guys, I don't think you all are thinking this through very clearly. He says, and are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He's saying, listen, to question me is to question you. 
You're the fruit of the tree that is me. So if you question the tree, what does that say then about you? If I'm inauthentic, you're inauthentic. He says, look, even if to others I'm not an apostle, and there's no evidence that anybody else was saying he's not an apostle, that's not the point. He says, at least I am to you, good grief. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. But since he is now going on to say, for some of you at least, you will only ascribe apostleship to those who have that right, that freedom to demand financial support from you. All right, fine. Let me make my case. I'll explain to you in great detail with many illustrations exactly why it is that I had the right, and I'll tell you as well why I didn't exercise the right. And he spends the next 12 verses giving them analogy after analogy, and he quotes from the Old Testament, and he uses the priests and the, and the temple and all of that stuff to say, guys, look, I had the right. In fact, he says, I have the right. But you get to verse 12, and he says, here's why I didn't exercise it. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but instead we endure. And look at the next word, because it's an everything on the table word. It's the word anything. So what he's saying is we're not going to run up against something that we kind of go, you know what, this is the last straw. Like I've endured a lot, but this one I'm not. No. We endure anything, and in this case including the inconvenience of having to work a part-time job and sleep in a crummy apartment and eat cheap food and wear crummy clothes so that I can present the gospel to you for free. We endure anything, he says, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why? Because for a follower of Jesus, the operative question is not, what's best for me? It's what's best for the gospel. Now, God works that out to be what's best for me, but that's typically in the next life. And again in verse 15, he says this, but I have made no use of any of these rights to financial support from you is the point. Nor, he adds, am I writing these things to you now in order to secure any such financial provision? For I would rather, listen to this, die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, which is this ground that I was able to provide you a gospel that was clutter-free because I did it at my own expense without accepting anything from you, without demanding anything from you, without requesting anything at all from you. And you know, and you read statements like that, for I would rather die. You know, it's like when one of us says, man, I'd rather punch myself in the face than do that, right? And you wouldn't do that. It's a lie. Just admit it. It's okay. But it sounds like hyperbole. It's exaggerated language until you remember how the man died. Do you know how he died? He had his head cut off for preaching the gospel. And that was no surprise to him. Like, you know, it wasn't like he went, oh my goodness, I never thought my life would end like this. Listen to some of the other things that he endured for the sake of the gospel. He tells this church, but in his second letter in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 22, where these guys are once again coming and they're questioning his apostleship. So now they're comparing him to these other teachers and to these other so-called apostles. And at some point, you got to kind of think if you're Paul, hey, you know what? I've planted a lot of churches and you guys are such a pain. Good grief, figure it out. You know, I mean, what more do I have to do with it? And he sacrifices his irritation, doesn't he? He sacrifices his impatience. Love requires much of us. The gospel requires much of us. 
But he goes on and says, okay, fine, you want to compare me to these guys? Let's, let's make the comparison. I will condescend to your sinfulness and foolishness. I'll play your game, he says. And so he takes it up in verse 22 and he says, are they, meaning these other people that you're, you're comparing me to, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I am a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. I cannot believe that we're having this conversation. I'm humiliated to have to do this. But if you want to go this route, let's go all the way down the street. He says, are they servants of Jesus? Okay, I'm a better one. Let's make the comparison. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. And I love this, with countless beatings. Countless is my favorite word because as we're going to see here in a second, Paul knows how to count. And there's not a thing wrong with his memory. He's going to say five times this and four times that, and I received the 40 lashes minus one. He's going to use all kinds of numbers. He authentically has lost count of how many times he's been beaten. It's astonishing. With countless beatings and often near death. So when death came, he's not stunned by it. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews. Five times the 40 lashes less one. Why? Because these guys were professional executioners. And 40 lashes was thought to kill you, so they'd give you one less. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead, if you know the story. Three times I was shipwrecked. Good grief. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I bet that was fun. On frequent journeys, and now listen to all the endangers from. Endangers from rivers. Endangers from robbers. Endanger from my own people. Endanger from the Gentiles. Endanger in the city. Endanger in the wilderness. Endanger in the sea. Endanger from false brothers. What he's doing is he's gathering up all of these opposites, and he's saying, I've been in danger here, and then on the other extreme, I've been in danger here. And the point is, it's a poetic device. He's saying, I've been in danger everywhere and all the time. Like there's nowhere I go, there's nothing I do in which I'm not in danger. There's no group of people with whom in the end I have found myself safe in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all of these other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. But why would Paul endure all of that, you might be wondering, only to then end very predictably as a martyr? Very predictably. Okay, because the fundamental question of life is not what's best for me, what's most comfortable for me, what would be the easiest route for me? How can I manage this in such a way as to make it good as I define good for me? It's what's best for the gospel, which, again, in the end, as he will now establish with us is also what's best for me. Death is not the end, guys. It really isn't. Listen again to what he says to this same church, but in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about the pressures and the anxieties and all of the stuff from all the persecutions and, and all of the issues that he's dealt with. And in verse 16, he says, so despite, this is the idea, all of the suffering and deprivations and persecutions that we're enduring for the sake of the gospel, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this, and I love it, light momentary affliction. Like there is nothing that this guy endures that seems light and momentary to me. I'm in danger all the time. That doesn't seem momentary. 
all of the beatings, all of the lashes, all of the left-for-dead moments. Exactly what's light about that? It's light and momentary in comparison with what he knows is coming. That's the point. He's looking ahead with the eyes of faith. Because it's only by the eyes of faith that you can see this. If these are the only eyes you use, none of this makes any sense at all. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, he says, are transient. Of course they are. We're transient. We're not here long. We're just passing through. Everything that we create is transient. Like us, it reflects our nature. It dies. It fades away. Nations, businesses, everything. He says, look, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal translation. There is an eternal life coming for those of us who have faith in Jesus in which our reward, our compensation for all of the sacrifices we make in answer to the question of what's best for the gospel as opposed to what's best for me will be so overwhelmingly compensated that all of our sacrifices will just disappear. I mean, it will be like, ugh. Was nothing. I'm sure it wasn't nothing in the moment, but but in the end it's gone. And what that enables us to do is to ask the question and authentically then in faith to pursue the answer. And so having established his right to receive their support, having explained why he didn't exercise that right, Paul continues in verse 16 by saying this. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. And then he calls upon himself a, a prophetic curse, an oracle of doom, okay? He says, if I do not preach the gospel, woe to me, right? Let God curse me if I do not preach the gospel. And when you attach that to that verse 15 that we read just a few minutes ago where he said, look, if I couldn't do this, like just I'd rather die. Okay, if you separate yourself from those statements for a minute and you just kind of go, okay, if we're not talking about the Apostle Paul and we're not talking about the gospel, this person needs counseling, right? I mean, this person is imbalanced, This person is obsessed in an unhealthy way. But we are talking about the gospel. And we are talking about Paul. And what he's calling us to recognize, and this is shocking, is that this is where we need to get. Like, this ought to be normative, not odd, for followers of Christ. Years ago, this guy, David Platt, a pastor, he wrote a book called Radical. And in the book, he said, listen, I, I, I named it Radical because it sounds radical to us, but what I'm describing is what ought to be normal Christianity. And he's right. He's not calling us to go, wow, man, you are a weirdo. He's calling us to say, yeah, I need to be that weird. I mean, that's That's something. He goes on, he says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship, as are we. And so what then is my reward? Well, that in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge to you people in Corinth, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel, and so as not to have you confuse the gospel with any other gospel that comes rolling through your town. And then he says, for though I am free from all, and that I am not financially or otherwise beholden to anyone... 
free to do as I want. He says, though I am free from all, notice what he does. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to faith in Christ is the point. And then he illustrates it to the Jews. He says, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. And so what I did when I was living among the Jews, because I wanted to win them to Christ, and I didn't want to erect any unnecessary barriers between me and my ability to, in relationship with these people, proclaim the gospel to them, I adhered to all of their rigorous dietary laws and Sabbath observances and all of that stuff, even though I had a right and a freedom not to do that. And it's terrifically inconvenient. So no pork sandwiches for me when I'm living among the Jews, and here's why. It's unnecessary. I want to reach them with the gospel. The question is, what's best for the gospel, not me? And that dictated my behavior. So to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. But I lived like I was so that I might win those under the law because, well, you know the question, what it is and isn't, right? To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, meaning I didn't sin in the process of this against God. But under the law of Christ, who incidentally did what? Who condescended to us, who came to us as one of us, and who came to us as a servant. How has Paul come to us? How, what has he said? He said, I've made myself a servant to everyone, and then as a servant gave away his life that he might offer the gospel to us for free. Paul saying, that's what I did for you guys. He continues, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak, and then he gives us his general disposition toward every kind of person when he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some of them. And I do it all for myself and for my own best interest, no, but it does work out that way actually in eternity. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its eternal blessings. So what is Paul doing? Again, he's set a real big table this time, and he said, okay, everything you have, everything you are, all on the table, enjoy it, but know this, there's something more important, and that's the gospel. And so then, when, not if, something you have or are stands between you and your ability to fully participate in the gospel mission of Jesus Christ, well, then love for Jesus and love for people means you need to get, get rid of that. You need to do away with that. You need to sacrifice that. You need to go without that. You need to stop asking what's best for me, and you need to start asking what's best for the gospel, knowing that in the end, by God's mercies, in the next life, the unseen one, that's where faith comes in. Okay, well, it'll be best for you then too. So what do you do with this? Because as you look at a message like this and you go, okay, I think I got the concept, great, you drilled it home a hundred times, nailed it, I got it, okay, I had it the first five, you went 15 more, so, you know, I got it. But, but what do you do with it now? now? I think what you do is you come to that table, you and the Lord, and you just start taking parts and pieces. <laughs> and then asking the question, what's best for the gospel? What's best for the gospel? I'll just give you some examples in terms of my schedule. And I'm going to tell you, these are invasive examples like, it will make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I, and I think that that's okay because the gospel is invasive. I mean, if Paul has said anything to us about anything, it's that. So what about our schedule? And here's why I started with this one. 
because Paul is compelled from within, not from without. In other words, Paul's not driven by guilt. He's not driven by shame. He's not driven by some attempt to try to earn the favor of the Lord by being obedient. There's no ought to, there's no should that's involved with him. He's not going, well, I should do this. Oh, guess I will. It's not it. He's doing it out of an inner compulsion, out of a heart that's been so transformed by the gospel that he can't imagine not doing it. I'd rather die than not do this. It's the love for Jesus that is compelling him to live this kind of a crazy-looking but normative, actually, Christian life. And that kind of a heart is formed by the Spirit through the gospel and through the habits and practices that God has given to us by which He takes our hearts and forms them and molds them and makes them more and more like the heart of Christ, more and more like the heart of this man whose heart was very much like the heart of Christ. And here's the bottom line on all that. It takes time. Like, it takes time to do personal worship every day. It takes time to come to church on Sundays. It takes time to be involved in meaningful Christian community. And where you risk actually being honest with people and vulnerable with people, it takes time. Sometimes it takes a long time to get to that point. It takes time to go, hey, you know what? I have a lot of gifts and abilities and talents and whatever, and, and I need to figure out how to use them. It takes time then to use them too, in addition to all of the other stuff on your plate. It takes a lot of time. And we all look at it and go, yeah, I know that I should, I know that I ought. Our schedules are the biggest enemies of our developing the kind of heart that lives like this. And this is the kind of life we're to be looking more and more like. So it's time to look at your schedule and ask the question, not what's best for me and how can I manage this in such a way as to, you know, what? No, no, no. What's best for the gospel? And declutter it. You know, one of the things that Ryan, our worship leader, said to me this week is he said, you know, Julie and I clean out our garage like twice a year. You know, we declutter it. We reorganize it. We, he said, maybe what we need to do spiritually is set a couple dates a year and kind of go, okay, wow. Man, a lot of stuff has crept into my life that's really impinging upon my ability to live missionally. What do I need to get rid of? What do I need to give away to other people? How can I declutter this thing so that I can fulfill the mission that I was actually born to fulfill? Secondly, what's best for the gospel in my family? What are we doing as parents to cultivate a love for Jesus and a missional heart in our kids? How are we modeling these habits and practices and values? How are we giving and creating for them because they need our wisdom by which to do this? The enough space to do this. This is going to win me no friends, and I'm not thinking of anyone, but just please hear it. What's best for me? I wouldn't say this. What's best for the gospel? I'm going to say this. We allow all kinds of stuff, and please hear the word allow. We allow, we promote all kinds of things in the lives of our kids in addition to school and all of this other stuff, many of which are wonderful, but not, not if they come and steal the ability of our children to commune with the Lord and of our ability as a family, for crying out loud, to participate in a spiritual community. We're establishing the values of our kids, and our goal is not to raise professional athletes. I'm sorry, it's not. Our goal is to raise followers of Christ. And if we arrange our lives in such a way that we can't even participate in that kind of stuff, when we send them to school, what do you think they're going to do? It's evident. So what's best for the gospel 
in my family? What's best for the gospel in my career or job? You know, I mean, is it helping or hurting my ability to spread the gospel in this city and in the world? How can I reposition myself within my company or, you know, within my business or reposition my business if I'm a business owner or whatever to actively promote Christ where I work and through my job? What's best for the gospel in my suffering? I put down both the suffering that you've passed through and suffering maybe that you're experiencing in the present. You know, are you looking for opportunities to testify to the faithfulness of God in the middle of your suffering? Because I'll tell you, you really have people's attention then. I remember months ago now, I went to the hospital to visit a man who was a longtime member of our church, and he was dying in the hospital. He was three weeks from death, and I went to see him. And, uh, and so, you know, he's in the bed, and he's got the wires and the tubes and the whole deal, and he's not going anywhere, okay? And he says to me, Tom, he said, you know, I, I just, I sit around here. I'm thinking, well, I'm stuck, right? This is it. First of all, he was joyful, which is in and of itself pretty stunning. Secondly, he said, I just sit here thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, who can I tell, you know, about Jesus today? Like, you know, maybe the nurses, you know, they've all heard from me now. And you know, some of the doctors, they've all heard from me. I can't, we'll get up and walk down the hall and tell anybody. But like, this guy's going out and he's going out missionally. It's awesome. I think for some of us, you know, our suffering is attached to some great failure or mistake or sin or something on our part, you know, and honestly, we'd just rather not talk about that. But maybe we should talk about that with other people who are struggling with the same thing, who's experienced that same failure, you know. I mean, God, if He owns us, He owns our failures too. And they're tools in His hands that He redeems as we sacrifice whatever it is, pride that stands between us and our willingness to come alongside another brother and sister and go, hey, listen, I did the same thing, you know, and, and walk with them in it. What's best for the gospel? What's best for the gospel in terms of my reputation? How can you use and maybe sacrifice your reputation because you've been given a platform? How can you thoughtfully and wisely use that to help spread the gospel in this city and in the world. And I'm going to go another step further because, yeah, just pleasing the crowd today all, all the way around. And I'm going to say, how can you use social media to promote Jesus? Because that's your face to the world, is it not? And to promote him more than some political candidate or agenda. I think it might be helpful for me to tell you why it is that we will not endorse any candidate and we will not endorse any party and we will not endorse any platform. And we will not even discuss it more than to say you should vote and vote Christianly. Christ owns your vote. So be biblical in the way that you evaluate what you do. That's it. That's the whole talk on politics. Why? Because our mission is not to elect people to government. Our hope is not in the election of people to government. Our mission is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city and to the world. And the reality is that when people who come in here, who maybe differ with me or maybe differ with you, and we've got a lot of different opinions in this room, which is actually kind of good, differ with us politically. If we put, the first thing that we do is put a voter guide in their hand and they reopen the voter guide and they realize, oh, good grief, they're completely on the opposite side of the page from me in regard to my politics that I am. I mean, like if ever I'm going to be agitated about it, it's pretty much right about now, isn't it? And so here's what happens. They close the voter guide, they close the ears, they close the heart to the real message. The citizenship that we need to concern ourselves with is the citizenship in heaven. That's the primary citizenship. The rest is significant. But it's not the most important thing. And I'm not saying, you know, don't talk about politics on social media. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think you're going to convince anyone of anything. I don't. Everybody's convinced 
They don't care. All you're going to do is provoke an argument. Oh, I'm going to persuade you. Yeah, no, you're not. You're not going to persuade anybody. Okay, that's not realistic. But be wise about how you present yourself. Is your presentation kind? Is it thoughtful? Is it sensitively stated? Respectful? Does it represent well somebody who might be the only face of Jesus that this other person who you're not going to convince anyway is going to seem or see? Or is it just as virulent? Okay, while I'm crowd-pleasing, what's best for the gospel in my finances? Because he owns that too, right? Like it's on the table. We're just going for it today. So just go. Just go with me. How have you positioned yourself financially so that you can take what God has given to you and use it to spread the gospel in the city and the world? How seriously do you take his dictates and his word? Do you tithe? Do you give beyond? Those kinds of things. Questions to ask. All right, last one that I'm going to give you. You might have other ones that you can work out with the Lord. But what's best for the gospel in terms of my future plans? What's best for the gospel in terms of my future plan as a young person and what I choose to do with my life? What's best for the gospel in terms of, okay, I'm not young anymore. I'm like fully involved in a career. What's, what's best for the gospel now? What's best for the gospel? Because I've got all kinds of retirement plans. And I can't wait to get to them because I'm thinking that's going to be what's best for me. <laughs> Listen, enjoy those, okay? Enjoy those. But, but the Lord might impinge upon those. He might come to you in your leisure and say, yeah, you know, here's, here's when you retire from this. When you die. And the true life and the new life and the eternal life that you need to be living in light of now actually then begins. So I think you got the point, okay? The operative question is not what's best for me. The operative question is what is best for the gospel? And I think the way to interact with that is to sit down with the Lord, you know, and your table and parts and pieces and say, okay, Lord, you know, be gentle with me. <laughs> you know, t- take it easy on me. But uh, what about this part? What about this part? What about this part? And then by the power of His Spirit and community with one another, Take them on. Learn to live it. Because in the end, see, it hurts now, but in the end, you're going to look back on it and go, man, I am so thankful that that's the way I learned to live. Because the compensation I get in heaven, which is all kinds of people, hopefully, that you've had a part in bringing to Christ for all of eternity, more than outweighs whatever sacrifices that I've made in this puny little life. So food for thought. I still love you. Go on Facebook when you get home and tell everybody, okay? Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word and thanks for this godly man, Paul, that you raised up. Lord, we thank you for the heart that you have given him that that is just so wonderfully on display. And I pray that by your spirit, you would challenge us to normative Christianity, which is radical in our eyes and surely is sacrificial. And Lord, that you would speak with us directly, lovingly, but clearly about what that next step looks like in our lives. So do these things, we pray, that your gospel might go forth, that your glory be seen and proclaimed, and that for all of eternity, Lord, we will rejoice for the life that you have led us to learn to live in the here and now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.